Well, today I plan to wrap up the 12th chapter of Hebrews, Lord willing. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, There's only 13 chapters in this New Testament book. We've made it almost to the end of the 12th. And in this section, the author is going to contrast the old covenant with the new covenant. If you were to grab hold of your Bibles and kind of divide it, New Testament and Old Testament, there's kind of two halves to a major story taking place. The Old Testament tells of God's dealing with his people in a particular way and to a particular end. A promise that God had with his people pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. And then the New Testament, that comes along, that is God's dealing with his people now in light of Jesus' coming, the fulfillment of that promise of the Old Testament. So in a, in a great sense, even a biblically prescribed sense, the whole Bible could be broken into two parts. God's promise with his people of old and God's promise with his people today. We're going to take a little bit of a look today at how those relate with one another. Because the author contrasts those at this point in the text. Now, if you have read chapters 1 through 12 of Hebrews, it would be no surprise to you at all that by the time we get here, he's going to make a big distinction between Old Covenant and New. He's been doing it literally since the very first verse of the first chapter, where he said, long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Way back then, he used to do this. But now he speaks to us through his son. So there's a distinction made right out of the gates in Hebrews, and we're going to see that picked up upon today. Now, here's a little bit of a warning. In this specific section I'm going to read through, there's a lot of poetic language being used about our current reality. And when that kind of language is being used, it can become uh, intriguing to kind of investigate and look at the details of that language so much that it kind of helps us get lost of the big picture. So here's what I'm going to effort to do. This is what I've been working hard all week long to try to do as I came here this Sunday. I want you to see the individual pieces of language here. I want you to look at those. It's good to spend time in every word here. We believe all those words are true. Even the symbolic language is meaningful, and there's stuff in there for us. So I'm going to show you some of those, try to give summaries of some of that language, and then I'm going to zoom out and just make sure that we are all seeing the big flow of what's taking place here why it is that the writer here put these words on the page. I'm going to go ahead and read through Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29, where our text is going to be today. So follow along if you have that in your Bibles, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to go back through just a verse or two at a time. Starting in chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, beautiful language here, amazing truths being given. I pray that you would help me this morning as I preach this text, that I would do so faithfully, that I would be true, clear, and helpful. Help keep any error in my thinking from getting into this text as I try to deliver to these people whom I love. Father, I pray that those who hear today will be able to look at this word and be well served by it. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to embed it deeply in our hearts and use it for your purposes. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. I want to go back to chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, if we can put that up on the screen here. I want you to read, read this out loud with me or t- take a look at this as I read this passage out loud, just the introduction again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now this couple verses points us back to a historical event that happens in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. And it is oftentimes the case in the letter to the Hebrews here, a couple of little indicators points back to a giant event. So if we were to read through that whole event, we'd have to cover chapters of the Old Testament. But I just want to go back and show you a couple of verses to highlight what was taking place when God established the Old Covenant with his people. You see, God had just taken his people out of slavery in Egypt. That was the event that those great plagues that he poured out on Egypt in order to break his people free from Pharaoh's grasp. They came up to the Red Sea and God parted the seas and the people walked through. They come out to the other side into the wilderness to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And while they're there, God tells Moses to get the people ready for the giving of his covenant. His law was about to be proclaimed to his people. He was going to make a promise with them. And in order to prepare them, he said, take three days, have them wash their clothes, have them abstain from any sexual contact. It was just going to be like a, just a, a pure of mind, just separate from all those things, just fast and prepare myself for what God was about to bring. I want to show you what it says here in the instructions uh, that Moses was to give to the people in Exodus 19, verse 12 through 13. Go look at this passage with me here. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care to not go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So the blast of a trumpet was to come. The people were to come to the mountain, but not too close. Close, but not too close. This is actually something you see all over the Old Testament. Come close to God, but not too close. Even the temple in the Old Testament was an image of God being in our midst, but you may not enter. 
That's the way that the whole system was supposed to work. It was supposed to show us our sinfulness had separated us from him. He, look at how he even says, if a person were to cross over that boundary and, and, and come into the entrance of uh, that kind of uh, fellowship with God, uninvited, if they were to step forward and touch that mountain, what, were to hap- what was to happen? Well, don't even break that law by sending more people to go get that guy and drag him back. Throw stones at him and shoot him with arrows until he's dead. That's intense. The same is true of animals, beast or man. No joke given out here. That's, what, that's how these people are first experiencing this promise between them and God. And what happens next in chapter 20 is that God declares the Ten Commandments. Have you ever pictured in your mind a Moses uh, kind of coming down the mountain with Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone, and he declares to the people the Ten Commandments? That does happen. It happens later. But the first time the people hear it, they hear it from the voice of God himself. And he literally, out loud, out of the thunder, out of the cloud, as they see this on the top of the mountain, they observe, they see physical manifestations of this, they hear the sound, the Ten Commandments are given. And immediately after the Ten Commandments are finished, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20. Take a look at this with me. Verses 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. And they did this for a reason. They were afraid. They stood far off while Moses, Moses was the only one who drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's pretty significant stuff. They hear the voice of God and they respond in fear. Have you ever heard someone say like, man, I wish I could just hear God. I wish I could just hear his voice. Listen, in the Old Testament, when someone heard the voice of God, this is what it produced. No, I can't hear anymore. That was what it produced in in the hearts of the people. They knew that the holiness of the Lord was great. And their unholiness, they could not stand. They couldn't endure that any longer. God established the covenant with his people here. A real brief just to make sure that we're on the same page. The promise that God made with his people was this. If you obey my law, you will remain in the land I'm about to give you. And if you break my law, I will take you out of the land that I've given you. That was the old covenant. That was the whole point of the old covenant. You are to remain in that land through your faithfulness. If you're unfaithful, I will send enemies to kick you out. So look back at the Hebrews text again. Look at Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, where we started. You'll see that's the same language. For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. That whole list there, in slightly different order, you can see the same pieces are there. That's the event that this is pointing back to. It's not hard to make that comparison. You go, oh yeah, that's, that's that part from Exodus chapter 19 and 20. But notice the retelling of this begins with the words, for you have not come to what may be touched. You have, you have not come to this tangible, historical, one-time, momentary event 
where all these things played out in real time. I want you to log this for a second. We're going to come back to this idea in a little bit. Put a bookmark in it because I want to bring you back to the we have not come to language. Instead, right now, let's just move into the next section and see what is said, starting in verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, there are some pretty interesting statements here, challenging even. I want to do a very quick survey of the language so we see those pieces, we get an idea of what's going on, and then zoom out again to make sure we're getting the big picture. What the author is going to do here is he's going to tell us where this old covenant or this new covenant brings us to, who it's given to, why, to what end it's given, and how it's possible for us to enter into that covenant. But right out of the gate, you'll notice that the first three references are to locations, namely a singular location. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. All of these refer to the same place. They're communicating the same thing. It's Old Testament language tied in with New Testament language. It's not talking about physical locations and all. And we can see that quite clearly because right out of, the, out of the gate it says, you have come to this. Well, you and I are part of that. You have come to this. If you're a believer today, he's going to make this clear. He has since the beginning of Hebrews. That by faith, when a person comes to Jesus, it's not as though we transport physically to a new location. So you and I are not trying to swim our way over to Israel to be closer to God. That's not the way that it works. We are to, with confidence, draw near to him right where we are. This is not physical location. This is a spiritual reality for us. If you're a believer today, you have come to this. You've gathered in a spiritual sense with the people of God in worship. You belong to a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city. No matter whatever happens to the earthly city of Jerusalem and that land, your home is secure and lasting. That's the where. So the people in the Old Testament were brought to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. We have not come to Sinai in the wilderness. We've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, heavenly Jerusalem. The next thing he talks about is the who. To whom is this new covenant proclaimed? Who gets to participate in the new promise made with God? Look at the language it says here. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal gathering, that's just a joyous celebration. Uh, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. Look at the next section after this, though. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There are three little pieces of language here referring to those who are participating in this new covenant. Angels. Pure creatures who encircle the throne of God. Messengers, servants, worshipers. Not human, but creatures. The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is the way the New Testament talks about believers. We are the ones who receive the inheritance. We are the ones whose names are written in the book of life in heaven. 
And I actually think this is probably more emphasizing the believing, uh, the living believers, those who are alive at the reading of this. Because the next group of people to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that refers to people who are in Christ and who died. And now in heaven have been made perfect. They're no longer sinners. They're not sinning at all anymore. They don't have the flesh attached to them and keeping them in that kind of bondage. So who is this assembly being talked about? This is all the worshipers of God. Angels, living believers, dead believers, all worshiping the Lord. This is the who. Those who get to experience the goodness of the new covenant. Next is the why. What's the end of this? What is the purpose of this promise in the new covenant? What is this? That we would be able to come to God. We've come to God, the judge of all. You remember in the old covenant, we talked about that, the people could not approach the mountain. They were to come close to observe, don't you dare come close to me. And now, in the new covenant, in the new promise, we have come to God. In fact, earlier in Hebrews, it tells us that we can approach the throne with confidence. We are to draw near to the presence of God. No longer is there this stiff arm, stay away you unholy one. But now we get to come all the way in to the presence of God. In fact, as the New, the New Testament and the book of Revelation in the end talks about our final end, it, it talks about our seeing God face to face. It's, the, it's kind of the ultimate. Why do we want to get to heaven? Because we want to be with God. That's why we want to be there. That's the ultimate end. But the question is, how is it possible for sinners like us to have peace with God, and that's made clear here as well. Because we have come to Jesus, look at the last verse, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, now real quick, because we're going to get lost if we don't understand this blood of Abel thing. Abel's blood cries out on account of injustice. It says this in Hebrews 11, a little bit earlier. It says this back in Genesis chapter 4. Abel is of the first brother pair born into human history after the fall. Adam and Eve give birth to Cain and Abel. Cain, one brother, kills Abel, the other brother. That's the way it goes down. Abel acts faithfully, offers up a sacrifice to God. Cain, unfaithful, God does not receive his sacrifice. Cain gets jealous, kills his brother. The first brothers that exist end in murder. The first act of worship that we see in the Bible, in the days of the fall, the faithful offering offered up by Abel was received with murderous intent by Cain. The Bible says that Abel's blood cries out. It's, it's, it's kind of a poetic way to say that the death of the innocent one, Abel, he didn't do anything wrong, worthy of death, the death cries out to God, injustice. This age will be marked with injustice. That's what Abel's blood cries out. But Jesus' blood cries out, justified. Jesus is the only one who is truly and fully innocent. And his death solves all the sin problems of our age. If you don't know this about yourself, you need to. You are a sinner before God. This means that in the eyes of God, he's given us a code to live by, and all of us, everyone, have broken that code. We have sinned against him. 
And because of that, we deserve his judgment, his punishment, the penalty for breaking his code. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. Not a single person can say, well, I'm perfect before God. Not a one of us can. And we are all deserving of his judgment. And his judgment is death, the wages of sin. What sin pays out is death. It's why people die. There's only one possible hope for us, though. Because all of us deserve God's just judgment, in his eternal goodness, God sent his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, the only one who lived perfectly all the days of his life. He did not deserve the wrath that all of us would deserve. And at the end of his life, he went to the cross willingly so that he might die bearing the wrath of God for our sins. Somebody had to pay with their life for sin. It is either the individual person who has sinned that needs to give their life or the life of Jesus who sheds his blood for all. Our only hope today is to repent of our sins and turn in faith to God. That is our only hope. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We say this all the time. Repent, repent. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. You know what the gospel of the kingdom is? It says in the New Testament, Jesus says to repent and believe. Repentance is not just seeing that my works don't offer the utility necessary to get to heaven. Repentance is realizing that we have sinned against God and turning from those things. God, I have sinned against you. I have done what is wrong. I am deserving of judgment. That's what I deserve. I repent of those things that I have done. Forgive me of that. What happens in that moment is that the Lord takes the sins and the punishment due for those sins and he places them on Jesus. So that in the eternal courtroom, when we stand before God and God looks at us, we're not even seen as guilty anymore because our guilt has been removed from us, put on Jesus, that punishment has been paid. There is no double jeopardy in heaven. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the gospel. He is the mediator of the new covenant. That's what the promise is. The promise now is if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's what the new covenant is. Faith alone saves. 1 Timothy 2.5, elsewhere in the New Testament, tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. As Moses stood between God and his people in the Old Testament, Jesus stands between God and his people in the New Testament. And he binds us in relationship and draws us together. It is not by works, but by faith alone. And remember for a moment, we need to not get lost in the details of the parts and pieces of this. Look at this, study this, take it home, Pine over each part of this. It's beautiful scripture for us to read. But the point that he's making is actually quite clear. You have not come to the old covenant. You've come to the new. So let's summarize the comparisons that he's saying. I actually did this this last week. I opened my journal. I put a line down the middle, and I put what he was saying about the old covenant on one side and what he's saying about the new covenant on the other side to see how it compares. And while admittedly the order is slightly off and the numbers don't feel like they line up as type A as I might prefer, you actually can see clearly the comparisons being made by the author here. So check these out. At the establishing of the Old Covenant, the people came to Mount Sinai 
But we in the new covenant have come to the heavenly mountain, Zion. The Old Testament Israelites were called to the wilderness. But we have come to the city of the living God. The old covenant was given to the congregation of both faithful and unfaithful alike. Those who had even turned their back on God days after hearing his words. But the new covenant is given to the elect of every age whose names have been written and they are secured in heaven. The people were not able to draw close to God for fear of death in the old covenant. But we are commanded to draw near to God in full confidence in the new The old covenant was mediated by the sinful Moses. The new covenant is mediated by the perfect Jesus. The old covenant was ratified by the blood of animals. But the new covenant is ratified by the perfect blood of Jesus. The author is trying to make it very clear to us. We have not come to that, but to this. And that's the first and most obvious takeaway from this passage. I don't think it's the main point. He's going to get there. But what he starts with, he establishes to make clear to us, is that we have got to see believers today are not part of the old covenant. The old covenant has been made obsolete. It is fulfilled entirely in Jesus. You don't remember this. You need to. The old covenant covenant was not about salvation. It was contingent on the works of the people. That's what it was about. The old covenant, if you obey my commandments, you will stay in the land. If you disobey my commandments, you'll get kicked out of the land. It was not about salvation. It was about ethnic prosperity. It was about the people of God, the nation of Israel, remaining in that place. That's what the old covenant was. Salvation has always and only ever been through faith, ever, even then. And that was the problem. Because the people back then heard the old covenant, they saw the promises, they saw the law, and they wrongly believed that salvation was attainable by their works. That's what happened. In fact, by the time that we get in history up to the days of Jesus, this system of religion had become so sophisticated in the minds of the people that the highest-ranking Jewish religious leaders believed that by works could they be saved, and it's evidenced all over the New Testament. Jesus says it time and time and time again. It's the central error he's dealing with in his, his ministry as he's walking about in the people of Israel. He's telling them, there are people here whose works look this way, but their heart goes that way. build up traditions of men. They follow those things as though they were law. Their lips proclaim what God has said, but their hearts are far from me. Man, he said to these Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees. You go out on your missionary endeavors and you make converts to hell. This is a big deal. Constantly pointing to this. The people had allowed themselves to think that the obedience to that law would produce salvation for the soul. That was never what the old covenant was about. It was preservation in the land so the promised Messiah could come and finally, once and for all, provide salvation for all mankind. That's why they needed to be there. It wasn't as though God looked down at Israel and said, that's an awesome place. Looks down at the people. Wow, those are some cool people. Let's make sure they stay here just because I like it. 
The point was that they would stay there until Jesus came and offered salvation for the world. It was always salvation through faith, persistence in the land through obedience. And the people missed it. This is so important for us to understand today because the old covenant and the new covenant are not the same. They're not the same. They're entirely different promises that God made to his people. And the old covenant was not abolished as though God just gave up on that. It has been fulfilled, fulfilled in Jesus. The old covenant is kind of like the Mayflower built to bring people to a new and more prosperous land. Once it has arrived at the destination, it is not as though we ought to go try to clamor our way back onto the Mayflower. No, 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 no. That did its work. It got us here. Praise be to God. The old covenant was there. But it has been fulfilled entirely in Jesus. We need to know this because people are enamored with good works. There's a tendency we've always had to try to go back to a wrong view even of the old covenant. Just follow the law, follow the law, follow the law. That's the foundations we need to build. That's how we get close to God. People constantly try to build religious towers up to heaven by their works and by their systems. The old covenant was never intended to work that way. It was a perversion of that that Jesus was even correcting when he came. They thought that their works, their obedience to the law could save. But salvation has only ever been by grace through faith. The old covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus. Its primary work is done. The simple fact that the author, throughout the entire book of Hebrews, and here in these two paragraphs in chapter 12, the fact that he's contrasting these should really make it clear to us that they're not the same and that we ought not try to enter the kingdom, get closer to God, by following the old covenant as though we are part of that. But the author here has a very specific reason as to why he's making this contrast again. As a warning. And that's what it says in the next verse. Look at verse 25 of Hebrews 12. Look at how it reads. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This whole passage has been building to this point. This whole chapter has been pointing us to this particular warning. They, back then, they heard the words of God and they did not remain faithful. And did he kick them out of the land? You're darn right he did. And if he was willing to carry through with kicking them out of the land in the old covenant day because they would not obey his word, because they would not remain faithful to what he commanded, how much more will he remain true to what he's promised in the new? This is to be a warning to us. To hear and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ is a damning prospect. Brother, sister, neighbor, you need to hear this. Because the call of the gospel is serious business. Repent and turn in faith to Jesus or you will spend an eternity in hell separated from him. That's what we're supposed to proclaim. 
We are supposed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how a person responds to God's call will determine where they spend an eternity. It's serious for us. That's the whole point of this warning. It's not to say, hey, in this New Testament day, now that we've gotten into the days of Jesus, it's really not a big deal if people refuse him. He's not actually going to follow through with what he said. No, this author is so compelled to warn his readers, remain faithful, hold steadfast to the end. And I want you to notice here that the speaking referred to here is present tense. See, you do not refuse him who is speaking. You see, they didn't respond rightly in faithfulness back in a moment in time when God spoke to them at a particular event. But here and now, this author is telling us that he is speaking. This is a present reality for us. He's actively doing this. How? How is it that today God is speaking? God speaks through his word. And he is currently warning us, not just from earth, a physical heard voice from a mountaintop, but from heaven. And just as Moses was responsible to warn his people to obey God's commands, we are to do likewise. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is a famous New Testament passage. Jesus commissions his people to go out and he says this. He says that they should go and make disciples of all the nations and then baptize those disciples. And immediately following that, he tells them this in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Everything that Jesus has taught, we are to proclaim. It is Jesus who told us that we must repent and believe. It is Jesus who told us we must stop sinning. It is Jesus who told us we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is Jesus who told us that we are to obey his words. We, believers, are to be a voice of warning, of warning. It is not our primary charge to be encouragers to the world. We are told to proclaim the good news to people, the grand and glorious news. But this includes the necessary warnings. And the proclamation of the gospel today is just as authoritative and as commanding as was the proclamation of the law on Mount Sinai. Isn't that interesting how it connects those things? When I read through that passage earlier, the, the one of the, if people step forward, they, they're going to be shot, killed if they try to approach that mountain. Did that seem harsh to you? It seemed harsh to me. Both the Hebrews portion and the Exodus that was the original telling of it. It's like, oh my goodness. I kind of had a picture in my mind when I take my kids to a parade and we're sitting on there on the curb and then someone throws like that nasty candy out on the ground that, and the kids go running in, you try to stop them. And I had that kind of image of, what if someone like accidentally went forward? It's hard to picture exactly what that event might have looked like in time. But what we do know is if somebody actually approached willfully to get forward and touch that mountain, they were to be killed. Is that harsh? No, I don't think so. Because it was to prevent a greater and more permanent judgment. All of the things in the Old Testament that tell us of those stories, while true in history, point us to greater and more eternal realities today. 
If God told the people to not approach or you will die then, how much more should we be concerned than if he tells us if you do not repent, you will go to hell forever today? That was to be a sign for us. If we do not obey God's voice, we will suffer a worse fate even than them. I think this is one of the most evidently missing pieces of modern Western evangelicalism. In an attempt to please the masses, we become the great encouragers of the world. People just need to leave uplifted and encouraged. Listen, the gospel is uplifting. There is nothing more encouraging. But yes, included in the message of the gospel is the proclamation of warning for those who will not be faithful to what it demands. In order to build big churches, to prop up celebrity pastors, many have accommodated the very worldliness that keeps people from hearing these truths. We must not judge our effectiveness by how well the people listen or how much they approve of the message. Just consider the Old Testament prophets, how many of them were abused and beaten and even killed by their own people because God told them to warn of coming judgment. As we look at the world today, we see a crazy and hostile environment. No one can speak into this environment more clearly than a man or woman of God with the Bible open, proclaiming what God said. All of this folly will be judged. All of it will be shaken. And all that will remain is what God has established to be true. And that's actually what he says next in verses 26 through 27. Look, look at this. It'll kind of be the ramp into the, into the final verse. At that time, again, back to the old covenant. Remember, it's the comparison again. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Physical. Mountains shook. Grounds. It was an actual earthquake. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he makes it very clear that the kind of shaking he's talking about is not a wee rumble. Did you, did you feel that? Did you feel that little tremor? This is the kind of shaking indicates the removal of creation. Removal of the things that are, the kind of shaking that will utterly and finally finish off creation. There will be a future day of judgment. There will be a future shaking. God will shake this creation how many more times? Two, three, no, one more time. Once more, he will shake not only the earth as it was shaken when he spoke on Mount Sinai, but also the heavens. The shaking will be far greater. A future time of judgment is coming on this earth. Now, I am well aware that there's a variety of views on what exactly that will look like, the timing of it, the order of some of those events. I'm very, very familiar with the way that believers look at that. But all orthodox views look forward and see some future day of judgment where all wrongs are finally righted. If you're wondering, how do I just summarize what to expect coming in the future? A shaking of what is here. 2 Peter 3.10 says it like this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's what's, a, that's what's in the future. Now, if that's the case, if we're looking ahead to that, are we to be nervous? Are we to be scared? Oh, oh my goodness. All of this is going to be shaken in this kind of dramatic, violent way? Should we be concerned? Not a bit. Not a bit. And the reason we ought not be concerned is not because God will take the church off the world as the craziness comes down. I hold to a historical view of the end times. I don't think that the church should think that the Lord will not allow us to be present for craziness in the future. And one of the reasons I think that is because passages like this don't ground our hope in the fact, don't worry, you, you, you won't have to be there for it. But the hope is grounded in what we currently have not being shakable. Look at the next verse. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see that? Guys, you, you can disagree with me on, on views on the future, future end times and things like that, but look at this. The reason we are to be encouraged is not because whew, we'll avoid any hardships in the future. The whole book of Hebrews is telling us hardships are coming and we will experience them. But the reason we should be secure is because we've been given something solid. Like the man who has built his house upon a rock when the tempest comes. The house will stand because we are founded on the word of God. We've been given a kingdom that when the earth and the heavens will be shaken, what we have cannot be shaken. And what should be our response because of that? And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It should produce worship in our hearts. Worship of whom? God. For our God is a consuming fire. Awesome way to end this, and here's why. Because this passage began, when we started in verse 18, it began by showing us how different the old covenant establishing and the new covenant establishing is. That's the whole point of the, the first half of the passage, right? We've not come to that moment where God was a fiery cloud on the top of a mountain. That's not what we've come to. we come to something different, a spiritually true forever unshakable something. But look at how it connects that back to here. But God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, has God changed? Nope. God has not gone from consuming fire on the top of a mountain to something different. And people try to make this claim all the time. Well, God used to be that judgmental, a hard, uh, a hard discipline, unloving, uncaring. People give all kinds of crazy thoughts. And now he's softened a bit in the New Testament. We get stuff like this all over. Our God today is every bit the consuming fire worthy of worship as he was when he delivered the law to the people in the old covenant on the top of Mount Sinai. That's the God we worship. That's the God that we praise. We are to worship him with reverence and with awe and all the while knowing that when we look out and we see how unstable the world looks, we are to remember this. We've been given something that can't shake. We've been given something that can't be taken away. 
And that's why we are to have hope. And that's why we can endure. Let's pray. Father, this whole passage, this whole text, this this entire letter to the Hebrews reminds us that rough things should be expected for believers in this age. And we we are constantly warned to not give up. And we are encouraged to remain faithful. But God, we're given a sound reason, not because Christians are the ones who've been given supernatural stubbornness, but because Christians are the ones who have been placed on the rock and not the sand. We've been placed on a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, I pray that this would become more and more evident to us. And Father, I pray that as people around us begin to feel the sand give way beneath their feet, I pray that they would look for a firm foundation. And I pray that we would be eager to proclaim the truth in love to people, that they may come to saving faith in Jesus, and they may join us standing on the rock, the unshakable kingdom. Lord, let us remain steadfast so that no matter what comes in the future, not only will we endure it, remain faithful for our own sake, and for the sake of the strengthening of the church, but that it would be a witness to the watching world that we hold to something that is untouchable by this world. We love you, Lord, and are grateful for that good gift. And pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.